Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. HIV and AIDS were once thought to be a death sentence. Today, there are effective treatments that allow people who are infected to live normal lives. The breakthroughs have led to these treatments did not happen overnight, nor did they happen without funding behind them. The same goes for prevention measures. So when the state's newly appointed health commissioner announced that the agency would be rejecting CDC funding for HIV testing and education, doctors and outreach workers were alarmed. Current CDC funding runs out in May. So how will this affect our most vulnerable communities? That's coming up later this hour. But first, the brutal beating of Tyree Nichols by Memphis police officers thrust our state into the national spotlight. But just days after the videos of that deadly encounter were released, Tennessee Republicans filed a bill that would take oversight powers away from civilian boards. WPLN's criminal justice reporter has more on police accountability and oversight, and she joins me now. Paige Flager, welcome back to This is Nashville. (laughs) Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. So, you know, this bill was introduced by a couple of Republicans, longtime Senator Mark Pody of Lebanon and Elaine Davis, a newly elected representative from Knoxville. What would it do... And what cities would it impact? Yeah, so it would completely abolish existing community oversight boards as they exist as they exist now and replace them with something that they're calling a police advisory and review committee, which would be largely appointed by the mayor of the cities. It would get rid of the boards that exist now in Nashville, Memphis, and Knoxville. And some of those boards are more powerful than others. For example, Nashville's board has subpoena power, um, whereas the boards in Memphis and Knoxville do not. And all of this is coming right after the killing of Tyree Nichols. How has that case impacted community oversight boards in Tennessee? Yeah, so in Memphis, um, Tyree Nichols' death has spurred calls for actually a more powerful community oversight board, um, one with subpoena power. And obviously that stands in stark contrast with this bill that would get rid of them altogether. Jill Fitchard is the head of the Community Oversight Board here in Nashville, and she says that it's really not surprising that the boards in cities like Memphis and Nashville would be in the crosshairs. You know, it's really concerning that the two major cities where there's the highest population of black and brown people and people who have the most encounters, probably the most negative encounters with policing, uh, would be, you know, in my opinion, targeted for this. She says the bill sends a clear message that some state lawmakers aren't really interested in police accountability, at least not in the ways that these oversight boards in the state are already doing it. You know, and these boards are here to investigate complaints from the community about interactions with the police. How might a mayor naming all these members change the makeup of the board? Yeah, we can take Nashville's board, for example. You know, right now, seven of the board members are nominated by community organizations or by a petition that needs to be signed by at least 50 percent of Davidson County residents and then approved by a majority vote of the city council. Then four of the seven members must reside in what they're calling kind of economically distressed communities. So the idea is like they're part of these communities where oftentimes we do see a lot of police presence. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then two of the board members are nominated by city council and 
then only two, as it stands, are nominated by the mayor and then approved by city council. So Now, is there any concern that the board made up by the mayor's appointees would impact how independently they function? Yeah, the board's separation from the city and kind of this community presence like the idea is that you you want people who often are interacting with police to look at a community oversight board and feel as though they can trust them Mm -hmm. that is the overarching idea so without that kind of independence investigations would be coming from inside the police department or with in the city government itself uh so jill fitchard says that this bill would kind of take us back to when police investigated themselves Oversight can't just be you t- you get a complaint in and you pass it over back to the police department. And that's essentially what they're saying. So, yeah, the will of the people are being circumvented in this process. And by that, she means Nashville got their oversight board. It was in the wake of several high profile police shootings. And the majority of voters overwhelmingly approved the board. They wanted this board. And so a a bill at the state level would essentially override what the people in cities like Nashville and Memphis and Knoxville wanted. These boards, they also investigate fatal police shootings. Mm -hmm. Here in Nashville, we've had two fatal police shootings already this year. And we've nearly surpassed the number of fatal shootings from all of 2022. Yeah. You did some digging into a shooting that happened at uh, early in early January. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me what you found? Yeah, so on January 5th, uh, SWAT officers arrived at the home of a man named Mark Caps, and they were there to arrest him. Um, Caps came to the door. The police say that he had a gun in his hand, and Officer Ashley Kendall Coon fatally shot Mark Caps within seconds. And the incident left a lot of folks who knew Caps uh, with questions about why exactly it escalated so quickly. Um, And while his caps, death is still under investigation, the personnel file of the police officer, um, Ashley Kendall Kuhn, it, it shows a history of use of force, escalations and suspensions. Anything out of the ordinary? Yeah, so usually when we do this type of request, um, and we do this after every fatal police shooting, um, and an officer generally has kind of a handful of use of force reports, not enough to really draw any types of conclusions. But I was surprised when we got um, Coon's file, and it had more reports than we're really used to seeing. So since joining the Metro Nashville Police Department in 2008, he's filled out at least 20 use of force reports. Uh, they detail... Several of them detail traffic stops, usually of black men, that escalated. You know, they include him wrestling a suspect to the ground, pulling his taser on them. There were foot pursuits that landed people in the hospital. Um, And then there was also an investigation into a complaint from a woman who says that uh, Kuhn groped her during a a search. And that investigation was not sustained um, in large part because investigators couldn't reach the woman uh, who made the allegation in the first place. Now, the the police department looks into these reports to see if use of force was appropriate or not. What did they find? Yeah, so in each of these 20 reports about these incidents, whether they were traffic stops or these things called knock and talks, um, in each of them, a supervisor found that his actions were appropriate. But 
still, he was disciplined for several aspects of his conduct. So there was a dangerous vehicle pursuit of a suspect. There was an interaction he had with a man when he knocked on his door to talk to him that escalated into pulling his gun. And he was disciplined for those those incidents. In total, he's been suspended eight times in the first five years of his tenure on the force. And the department says it's important to note, you know, he hasn't been suspended again since 2013. But now this officer is on the SWAT team, which is usually put into these high pressure situations, similar to what we saw in the Mark Capps shooting. So what are the big takeaways from all this to you? Yeah, I've been thinking about this a lot. So, uh, you know, after the Tyree Nichols beating, there were a lot of questions generally about police oversight. Like, had Nichols not died of his injuries, would that interaction have become public? Would people have looked into these officers' behaviors? Would they still be on the force? Would they still have their jobs? I think there are similar questions here about the officer involved in this Mark Cap shooting. Would we be talking about his history or looking more critically into it if he had not been the officer who was on the Mark Capps call and had not fatally shot him? Um, Jill Fitchard of the Community Oversight Board says that that really shouldn't be the case. We would have never known unless he was involved in a shooting. You got what I'm saying? So there has to be a system where we see officers who have, uh, you know, excessive uses of force on a continual basis that that we are uh, aware of that prior to them involved in another, you know, a, you know, shooting or any other type of issue. And it really would be these oversight boards who would be leading the charge for creating some type of system like this one. So at the end of the day, in cities like Memphis and in Nashville, community oversight boards are really the entity that people turn to to report incidents with law enforcement. These yeah. are the ones that end fatally and the ones that don't. Uh, and these boards are really the ones who call into question an officer's history and the training that they receive which has a real tangible impact on their interactions with the community. Paige Flager is WPLN's criminal justice reporter. Paige, as always, thanks for being here and thank you for your reporting. Thanks. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll learn more about the state's decision to reject federal HIV funding and who will be affected. What are your concerns? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil Colonna, and this is Nashville. When the newly appointed Tennessee Health Commissioner, Dr. Ralph Alvarado, announced that the state would be rejecting federal CDC funding for HIV prevention resources, he said it was a part of the state's larger goals of moving away from funds that have federal strings attached. He went on to say that the state would be able to provide better care for populations in need, focusing on first responders, mothers and children, and victims of human trafficking. The population he left out are the ones most disproportionately affected by HIV, young black men, and men who have sex with men. Current CDC funds will run out in May. What are the consequences of this move? How are advocates and outreach workers preparing? My next guests 
can help to answer those questions. Shamar Gunn is Prevention Director at 3MV and 3MV Program Coordinator at Nashville Streetworks Clinics. And Dr. Aima Ahankai is member a member of the HIV Medical Association. It's glad to have you both here with us. Shamar, welcome to This Is Nashville. And Dr. Ahankai, it's good to have you back. Thank you. Great to be here. So thank you. It's great to be here. Really good to have you both with us. I do want to say that we invited Tennessee Health Commissioner Dr. Ralph Alvarado to be a guest on today's show, but his office declined. So with that, I think we should start, you know, by understanding what is happening with the CDC and funding. Dr. Ahankai, can you break this down for us? Sure. Um, There are two large federal grants um, administered by the Center for Disease Control that are focused on providing resources to states for HIV prevention and surveillance activities. So that means all of the activities that let us know how we're doing with diagnosing, treating, getting people who are living with HIV into care, and also the prevention services. So we have excellent ways to prevent people who are at risk for getting HIV from actually getting it that work absolutely really well. And so those two large grants totaling almost $9 million um, have been, have, are the ones that have been rejected. Almost $9 million. Right. It's quite a bit of funds. Right. What, what are some of the potential consequences of this move to reject funding? So I think there are many important levels of potential consequence that, that we're concerned about. Um, I say we as, as physicians, as public health advocates, as community-based organizations like StreetWorks. One is that removing those funds um, that are targeted for these activities, um, you know, will remove a key component of the HIV response. So that is, like I said, prevention and surveillance. Another is that shifting the conversation to focus on population priority populations that have now been defined um, that are not based in any fact or evidence is really problematic. So, for instance. Right now, there's one study that that is really important that highlights that if we are to shift the narrative to say now that first responders, victims of sexual assault, pregnant women are the priority populations, we may prevent nine cases a year of new HIV infections. Mm -hmm. Whereas if we focus those dollars and efforts on the communities who are most at risk, we would prevent 509 new HIV infections in a year. So we're, we're actually focusing in the wrong places and the wrong people. And that has a number of downstream consequences, costs for new infections, you know, infections that didn't have to happen in the first place, um, and so on and so on and so on. So I think there, there are many levels of, of, of potential consequence that we're worried about. Now, Shamar, you work at a local clinic, Nashville Streetworks. How will your organization be affected by this reduction of funds? Well, not only will the community be affected, um, but our whole organization will be affected. Um, We have a lot of people who are a part of these programs that are intervention prevention programs to help educate people on how to not contract HIV. Um, These people actually get out into the field and actually help people to learn the things that they need to actually survive. Um, we also have outreach workers that go out to bring people into our facilities to um, help educate them and help test them as well. With these fundings being cut, it will cut these programs. It will cut people's jobs. Uh, You're breaking up. Are you still with us, Shamar? Um, 
still here. Can you hear me? Got you now. Yes. Okay. 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 So um, we're a small organization. We have 19 people. Um, these fundings cut, um, it will be about 10 people without a job. So that's nearly half of our um, organization. So just imagine that across the whole state of Tennessee. Would you um, all have administrate? Would, would you all have um, to shut down if you cut um, nine people? We, we, we might not have to shut down, but things will look a lot different. Mm. And we test like prevention is a bulk of what we do at Streetworks. Um, our prevention programs are for black gay, uh, for black gay men the ages of eighteen to thirty five. We have prevention programs for um, people who inject drugs. Um, both of those will be affected. Um, also, um, when these funds have like will be cut, we um, have to go out and find fundraising and help to help provide for our uh, community. So I just want to give a shout out to the Baptist Healing Trust for always being there um, when we need them. Um, but like I was saying, we administrate over 350 tests per year. Mm. These are free eight, uh, HIV tests that are rapid. You can look, get your results literally in 20 minutes. Um, with this cut, with this cut in funding, that will literally cut the free HIV testing that we provide in the community. Now, and you, a lot of people actually look up to that. You say these programs are going to be affected. Do you do you think you'd have to discontinue any of them? Yes. We, we, if the funding is not there, we probably would have to discontinue them. Um, we can get out and educate, um, but um, with the being cut, um, people's jobs will be cut. So who will get out there and educate? Who will want to get out there and listen when the people who have been in the community for all these years are no longer there? Tell me, how have your colleagues reacted to this news? Um, some um, very um, sad um, ever since they found out. Um, but it's just to fight and say that we are going to do whatever we can to make sure that our funding is not cut. And that's what we have to do as a community because that's what we do. We serve the community and the community actually comes to us for help. Mm-hmm. And so without the help, where are they going to go? You know, Dr. Ahankai, this is about more than HIV, right? I mean, it's about sexually transmitted infections on a whole. Right. Where does Tennessee stand in, in our ability to prevent the spread of STIs? So, unfortunately, Tennessee ranks in the top 10 in the country in a number of sexually transmitted infections, including gonorrhea and chlamydia. Mm. So that's an unfortunate um, place that we hold in the nation. And so with these prevention activities that Shamar was describing, in addition to programs that will definitely need to close close across the state, programs that will no longer be able to test people, staff and individuals who've dedicated their life's work to doing this type of work, um, we will certainly see impact on increasing STD rates, sexually transmitted infections. And those also impact the very populations that um, the, the new plans hope to target, that is mm. pregnant women. If pregnant women um, are infected with sexually transmitted infections, that can cause the loss of a pregnancy, that can cause really difficult complications for newborns. So so when I say that the potential consequences are at so many levels, I think the even unintended consequences of this is even greater than I think some of the policymakers may may understand. And yeah. it, it's really concerning. So this move will affect 
you know, anyone in the entire state who is sexually active, essentially. Yes. Hmm. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Kaliole Colonna. We're talking this hour about the Tennessee Health Commission's decision to reject CDC funding for HIV prevention. Join the conversation and tweet us at This Is Nashville. Now, Shamar, who are some of the people under the greatest greatest risk of losing services because of this cut in funding? I would say um, the to the LGBTQ community, so black gay men, uh, people who have sex with men. Um, also, I would say the black community in general, uh, or people with, um, well, the people of color. Um, so this includes the Latinx community as well. Um, literally every, I would say every two months, we have at least five or six new positives when it comes from this the particular demographic. So if you cut that, that would literally be, um, what would that be, like uh, almost 24 to 30 people each year, mm-hmm. like Dr. A said. Um, if you focus on these targeted demographics, that will only be like nine um, positives per year. But as you can see, just my organization does well over nine with the target demographics that we have. Yeah. Um, and also women are being impacted more so with HIV. You know, you, you, and also people who inject drugs. You spoke about the trust that is built up with the communities that people like Streetworks and National mm-hmm. Cares serve, you know, and a lot of these communities are already stigmatized. What's going to happen to the folks your organization has been reaching when this funding disappears? Well, it it could really affect them tremendously. Um, We do have one part of our organization that actually helps people who are living with HIV. Um, So they actually help treat and care for people living with HIV. Um, In the future, that might be uh, for prevention. um, That's going to affect um, our kind of distribution. Um, That's also going to affect our prep um, navigation and um, uh, um, providing to the community. Um, because what you do, if you don't know what PrEP is, PrEP is pre-exposure prophylaxis, which is a pill um, that a person can take every day to help them not contract HIV. Um, with the cut in funding, that is going to be a cut in that as well. And a lot of men who have sex with men are taking that pill to avoid contracting HIV. You know, now years of successfully treating people with HIV and combined with the COVID-19 pandemic has, you know, has led us in the public in a way to forget about HIV almost entirely. Dr. Honkai, what risks do we face if we act like HIV doesn't matter as much as it once did? So I think, as you mentioned, the story is about HIV, but the story is greater than HIV as well. As Shamar was describing, you know, and the last time I was here on World AIDS Day, we were talking a lot about stigma Mm -hmm. and how stigma is killing our communities. And shifting away the focus and the attention from the communities who need these resources, I think will further stigmatize HIV and is another way that will lead us kind of to take several steps back. I think also, you know, one of the really important things are the are the work of Streetworks and Nashville Cares and many other community-based organizations across the state 
that we rely on as part of our public health infrastructure. Mm. And they do work that's important for HIV, but they do work that's important for the community. These are the organizations that we relied on during the COVID pandemic. These are the organizations that we relied on when there was an MPOX outbreak. And who knows what the next thing will be where we need to rely on a strong public health infrastructure with organizations that are trusted by the community. So I think I think the conversation is is certainly about HIV, but the implications are even wider. You know, last month and last month's announcement that the state would be rejecting CDC fundings was really surprising. But in November, they also pulled funding from some other programs like Planned Parenthood of Tennessee and North Mississippi. Our producer reached out to Planned Parenthood CEO Ashley Cofield. This is what we're very concerned that the state is rapidly politicizing public health to conform to a far right Christian version of morality. And it's very dangerous. It's affecting people from all walks of life. Um, It consistently touches issues that Planned Parenthood deals with. And as a result, I've had a front row seat as Tennessee has become captive to extremists and puts people's um, life and health at risk. We don't know how far this extremism will go, but we're urging everyone across the political spectrum to unite and oppose it. Okay, so, you know, there's no doubt in Ashley Cofield's mind that these cuts are politically motivated. Dr. Honkai, do you see any reason for these cuts? I think there's a there's a clear narrative that's been spelled out about this. And, you know, from my perspective, as an infectious diseases physician, as a public health physician and advocate, you know, we've had clear bipartisan support for initiatives to end the HIV epidemic in the country. In 2019, when we recognized that we really needed to do better to address this this pandemic in the right communities to be able to get to actually end HIV, that was that was a legislation that was signed by the Trump administration. That is the that is the legislation that led to these funds that we're now rejecting. Mm. So, you know, what whatever this agenda is, whatever is driving it. We just know it is not grounded in fact. It is not grounded in science. It is not grounded in evidence. And it will harm our community as a whole at large. And and it's just highly, highly disturbing. Shamar, would you like to respond to Ashley's comments? Um, I would say maybe it is kind of political um, just because of the demographics that we have been servicing. Um, we have been working so hard um, for so many years to combat this virus and this epidemic. And now it just feels like that our efforts are coming to a standstill. And that's why I, I've been so upset about the cut of funding. But that's all I have. You know, there's been a lot of conversation about people having to leave the state to receive abortion treatment. Shamar, do you think something similar will have to happen for people seeking HIV treatment? Honestly, I don't want to think that that will go that far. But as you can see, anything is possible. Anything can happen. Um, but if it does get that far, it would it would it would really put a damper on our community. It would really put a lot of people um, at risk, and a lot of people would be able to access those services the way that they have been for years. You know, Doctor Ahankai, how will this affect the healthcare system? I mean. Could the state's healthcare system be overwhelmed by a potential new wave of H- a- STI and HIV cases? 
we've we've definitely seen examples of this. And so I think, you know, we're certainly not being alarmist in really trying to paint a picture of the road that we could end up going down. It takes an average of about $600,000 a year to take care of someone living with HIV. And when we say that, first, we will fail to prevent new infections um, it, with, this, with these new targeted strategies for risk groups. But also we know that in Tennessee, and one of your experts coming on later will know more about this, but there are several 11 counties in Tennessee that are really at high risk for a hepatitis or HIV outbreak. Mm. And that's really because of our high rates of opioid prescription and substance abuse in Tennessee. So this is not just about the the populations that we want to avoid talking about and serving. Um, we're also talking about the conflation of a substance abuse epidemic that makes it ripe for certain communities in, te- in Tennessee, mostly Middle and East Tennessee, to have an HIV or hepatitis C outbreak because of opioid use. If, if these things are conflating at the same time, this will have a, a, a huge financial cost and burden to the state. So by not by not doing the the evidence-based, evidence-guided thing at the outset, we will be stuck with a, a greater price tag for taking care of these infections that we could have avoided. And, and that's certainly at a big cost to the state. Now, Shamar, what do you want people to be aware of and how we approach and treat HIV and other STIs in our state? I just want people to understand that Everybody has an HIV status, and we are always here and focus on reducing the harm and not the person, uh, because we always feels like um, what you do is what you do, and nobody can take that from you. But we're always going to make sure that you are going to be safe. So with that, I advise everybody to get an HIV test. Please come to Streetworks and get free HIV test. It's just a 20-minute result, and we will take care of you. Okay, say that last part again. Come down to Streetworks. You said, is it free? Yes, it's free. We are doing free. We do Monday. Okay, we're going to get clarity on that, the wonders of modern technology, y'all. Shamar Gunn is Prevention Director at 3MV and 3MV Program Coordinator at Nashville Streetworks Clinic. Shamar, thank you so much for being with us today. Really appreciate it. Dr. Aima Ahankai will stick with us through the break. We have to take a short. When we come back, we'll continue how to explore our declining federal funding for HIV prevention and see how it might affect the people in our state. Join the conversation and tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Lele Colonna, and this is Nashville. Physicians, outreach workers, and advocates in Tennessee are worried. That's because our state's health commission recently decided to reject federal funds for HIV prevention and education. Before the break, we talked about who will be most impacted by these funding cuts. 
Now let's explore how this move would affect public health in our state. My next guests are Dr. Peter Robero, epidemiologist and biostatistician. Dr. Robero, thank you for being with us today. Welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you so much. And Philip, Phil Michael Thomas is a <laughs> human rights activist as well as a former guest of the show. Phil, thanks for joining us. Welcome back. I'm sorry I just confused you with the famous actor from the 80s. Thank you. No problem. Now, you know, I will add that we invited Tennessee Health Commissioner Dr. Ralph Alvarado to be a guest on today's show, but his office did decline. So let me start. Phil, how did you react when you heard about the announcement that the state would be rejecting this funding for HIV treatment and education? To be honest, I saw fire. I saw red. Um, the first thought of my mind was... Uh, Racial, homophobic, genocide. Um, because although AIDS and HIV is not predominantly for just one particular race or group, it's for everyone, anyone can be infected, we still uh, still have a large, a high number of blacks and browns who are being infected. Uh, not just in the gay, same uh, men, uh, same sex world, but also in the black community itself. And I feel like, why are we doing this? Why are we being reactive instead of proactive like we always been? Mm. You know, you've been an activist and an advocate for decades now. And, yes. <laughs> you know, you've seen the awareness and treatment of HIV and AIDS. You see it in, you've seen it improve over years, but it's it's completely not gone. Right. I mean, how important is it that the public understand that HIV is still a threat to public health? Well, they real OK. Unfortunately, uh, years ago, when it first started coming out, we started going to uh, I went to so many memorial services and funerals that it was you couldn't think of it. And as medication came in and became a maintenance issue, people stopped believing that AIDS is such a uh, threat. They felt, okay, I can still do this and, and I can uh, live my life and it's, it's okay. I'm, uh, it's not a death threat anymore. So a lot of people, and then we also limit the education to even the youth. We're thinking that the youth is too young to hear about a treatment plans and education on that. And at the same time, we have active, sexually active youth. Mm -hmm. So we, people, because they got too relaxed, the game became too complacent to thinking it's not, it's not bad anymore. But just because you don't see the same number of deaths does not mean that it has been eradicated from our system. You know, Peter, as an epidemiologist, how did you react to the news of the state turning down these federal HIV prevention funds? Well, I'll say immediately I reacted by thinking this can't be based on evidence. Mm. Uh, as Dr. Ahankai talked about in the previous segment, actually, you know, there have been great strides made in fighting HIV, in learning what works for prevention and treatment, um, extending people's lifespans, living with HIV and improving health overall. And this decision seems like it can't logically be based on everything that we've learned over the past nearly 40 years of studying both how the disease works, how transmission works, the groups that are most affected in the United States and especially in Tennessee. 
and changing the priority populations, rejecting the funding, uh, cutting out community organizations that have done the very hard work of building rapport, building relationships. That's how you reach affected communities in public health uh, most effectively and efficiently. So uh, my immediate reaction was one of kind of shock and disbelief that, you know, we could be taking such a huge step backward after we've made so much progress over the past several decades in figuring out how to have an effective public health response to this disease. Are there other examples, either, you know, in Tennessee or nationally, where, you know, state policy, the policy of ignoring, where states are ignoring or discounting the science around this type of thing? Yes, uh, unfortunately, we've had over the past several years um, outbreak events in various states, including in Tennessee. Um, and in states with Appalachian uh, populations, um, famously in 2015 in Scott County, Indiana, there was an outbreak where uh, epidemiologists and public health officials immediately recommended safe syringe practices be implemented because it was among people who inject drugs. Um, so to prevent further transmission, the state kind of dragged its heels and delayed um, for political reasons. And there were many more infections than there really needed to be. Um, so unfortunately, we do have this pattern of at times we do have leaders who fall into ignoring evidence or deciding to make political decisions or policy decisions around public health on something other than the science. And it never, never ends well. Mm. That's a huge threat to public health. When yes, they do that. yes. Now, in his statement, Tennessee Health Commissioner Dr. Ralph Alvarado said that the state would focus on first responders, mothers and children and victims of human trafficking. Tell me, what do the numbers say about those populations and their risks of contracting HIV? You know, I want to be careful to say for public health reasons, of course, it's wonderful to focus you know, efforts and, and funding on vulnerable populations of all kinds. But again, the science does not support that for HIV. If we're talking about HIV, we have only a handful of cases of transmissions from mother to child, for example. I think zero first responders uh, in the past decade. Um, so we're talking about a minuscule number of infections that could be prevented by focusing on those populations, less than 10 annually. Mm. And so it doesn't make any sense when we have 650 to 750 new infections in Tennessee every year to say, well, we'll focus a huge chunk of funding on preventing maybe zero cases or maybe one case per year. Now, Phil, you worked with Nashville Cares for years. In fact, we did a show on how Nashville Cares and other groups had such a positive impact on the city. But this kind of funds will affect Cares and other organizations. What are we going to lose if we pull back, if they have to pull back on how they operate? Great question. Um, let me give you a little bit, little bit of a history with that. Mm -hmm. I... Uh, before I moved back to Nashville, I used to be with Hate Atlanta in Atlanta, Georgia. And I came back, started work with Nashville Cares back when it was in a small uh, office. And actually, the same room of people in here was about half of the staff that was there at that time. And it was a grassroots organization. And throughout the years, and I know that I was trying to get into the black community to reach out to tell them about the care, it's about the education part. And I didn't have as much luck as someone else. And then, I don't know if y'all believe in superheroes, 
but uh, there it was this guy came down from Bronx, New York, um, and he started working at CARES as a volunteer. Then I think he later became a staff, and um, he was able to pull people out of their shells, out of the closets, and and come out and get to training and get to treatments and started to really show people that there's life even after the diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I called him Captain Driggs, uh, Captain Driggs, but his actual name is Dwayne Jenkins. And over, he's been with them for 20, over 29 years. There's a lot of lives that he has touched. And when you come into this, Paul, you're talking about a trust level. And when you talk, when you take away that trust level from anywhere, regardless of what you're dealing with, people don't come to you readily. They have to build up that trust. They have to build up that confidence with you. So in order to take away, I mean, what do we do? Do we look at people who have given their, their lives to help others people, to help other people by saying, we're just going to take away your jobs? Mm-hmm. Or do we say, thank you? And that's what we need to do. We need to be more concerned about, uh, we are all into, all the agencies right now, nonprofit, the health department, everything, we are all interdependent on each other. No one agency can do it by themselves. Mm. Now, you know, Dr. Ima Ahankai is still with us. Dr. Ahankai, you talked about this a little bit earlier, but, you know, how important are these community, community organizations that Phil is talking about, like Nashville Cares? How important are they to our overall public health ecosystem? They're they're really critical. And I think we're talking about some of the organizations that are AIDS service organizations, and that's the primary body of their work. But some of these organizations across the state have a number of different functions that are not specific to HIV. And their staffing is being cut, and their staffing is being is at risk. So that's why I said even though, you know, this is my life's work and commitment to work for, for people living with HIV, people who are vulnerable to it. But this story is about HIV and more because the public health infrastructure um, includes organizations that are serving us in a number of ways that, you know, we may not even realize. And it's the trust that you just described that's so critical. You can't rebuild that easily. Mm-hmm. And then when we need them, they won't be there. These yeah. organizations. We just saw how much trust is important in public health dealing with the pandemic. Exactly. Hmm. Exactly. If you're ju- just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Colonna. We're talking this hour about the state's decision to reject HIV funding from the CDC with Phil Michael Thomas, Dr. Aima Ahankai, and Dr. Peter Robero. Now, Peter, what areas of our state are under the greatest risk from this cut in funding? Well, I'd say both urban and rural areas, and actually for the reasons Dr. Ahankai just spoke about, um, I think it could have really broad effects. Obviously, here in Metro Davidson, um, Metro Nashville, um, there is a large number of uh, HIV cases that come out every year um, out of the state's total incidence um, of HIV every year. The largest uh, area is actually the Shelby County metro statistical area, so Memphis. Um, But we also have areas that are vulnerable uh, to outbreaks um, in rural Tennessee and East Tennessee Mm -hmm. um, and in Northwest Tennessee. Um, So 
if we're talking about programs that derive their funding from CDC that are syringe service programs uh, that primarily take care of people who inject drugs um, and prevent transmission from those populations, we could be seeing uh, a growth in cases in rural areas as well. You know, these repercussions are very, very scary. How far back will this move take us? I think potentially it could take us back decades. Um, mm. I think that uh, we look back at kind of the late 80s and early 90s before the era of modern treatment as being a time of maximum transmission and mortality in the U.S. related to HIV. And if we decide suddenly that we're not going to follow the science and we're not going to prioritize the right populations and we're not going to empower the organizations that have rapport and trust with those communities, we could again see those transmission rates come back um, because even work we've done recently looking at late HIV diagnoses, so those are people who don't know their status until they're already feeling very, very sick, of course, those people are at much higher risk of having worse disease progression themselves and are at higher risk of dying from HIV, but they're also at risk of transmitting unknowingly mm. to more people. And so the growth in transmission really could become quite large if we withdraw funding from the people who actually are at high risk of HIV. All right, so what can people do who are listening to try to change this policy, or is it already too late? Well, I, I, I never like to say it's too late, but I think talking to their elected representatives is key. I think writing letters and I think supporting organizations that are doing advocacy uh, like AMFAR, like AIDS United and their local organizations like Streetworks, like Nashville Cares, you know, not only writing to them to encourage them, but donating, I think is important because um, advocating may cause politicians to rethink this decision, or if not rethink the decision, maybe other politicians externally figuring out, is there a way to directly fund these community-based organizations, or is there a way to salvage some of this funding um, through other mechanisms? But, you know, I, I will say so far I have been a bit disappointed in the state's response, the health commissioner's response. But, I, you know, I never like to say that all hope is lost. Now, is there any way to get funding without going through the state? I mean, there and there are experts on this beyond, uh, you know, my scope of expertise. Uh, but uh, generally, yes, there are ways to directly fund community based organizations. It is more difficult because we're talking about a volume of funds that's quite large and needs to be distributed and needs to meet lots of requirements, both from the federal government and from the state government in order to be administered properly. Mm. And I know Dr. Honkai actually talked about, you know, ancillary or lateral effects like having clinics that do STI testing being affected. And so yeah. that's just an example. There, there are many, many different requirements for receiving these types of funds. And so withdrawing them has many, many consequences. Dr. Honkai, you know, how are organizations, how, are, how do you see them adapting? to these new changes in this reality we're facing? Well, I think obviously we're all hoping that they don't have to adapt. Um, like Peter said, you know, it's possible that that we can't walk this back, but we're we, the reason we're here to amplify this conversation is to make sure that people actually do understand the potential consequences of these decisions. So that that's one. Um, but I, but I think that you know, as Peter also just mentioned, there are um, other p 
potential impacts that we haven't even discussed here today. And the types of, these are not small adaptations that mm. organizations would have to make. You know, there are some organizations that need to have access to these federal funds to have access to other funds to be able to provide, for example, HIV services. And so, um, one, figuring out how to divert resources, um, these resources to community organizations is one humongous task. Another is to figure out how to keep teams whole, you know, rather than laying off um, all, all of these staff members. And, you know, we, we collaborate, Dr. Barrow and I, with partners all across the state and have had so many conversations and people are devastated. People are devastated. My patients, um, my, fr- my colleagues' patients are, are calling us and saying, how is this going to affect us? Mm-hmm. It's re-stigmatizing. It's re-traumatizing. So it's, it's and, and, and we're hoping that even if we have to deal with this and adapt, as, as you say, in Tennessee, that other states are listening to this conversation and not allowing such legislation to even get to the table. Phil, what do you want people to walk away with from today's conversation? I want them to take with them that instead of us eradicating the stigma, these actions that's been proposed is more or less promoting the stigma. We don't want people to stay away from medical facilities. We don't want medical providers. We want them to come and get treated. But at the same time, we also need to put the education out there to let them know what's going on. And also that we have not forgotten them, that they are, not, that they are worthy of us. They are not worthless, but they are worthy, and they are still the same people that they are. And we need to, that they, we still have that back. Peter? I hope that people take away that public health response requires both the science and the evidence to guide it, but it also requires human relationships. It's public health, it's people. And so we can't abandon organizations that have done the hard work over decades of building relationships and communities to actually deliver the prevention services that are needed. And in public health, we always say an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Mm. So that's important to keep in mind. Prevention first. So we lost Shamar Gunn at the end of the last segment, but we've got the info we missed. Shamar says... We do free HIV and hepatitis C testing at Streetworks Monday through Friday from 8.30 to 4.30, 8.30 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. Once again, they're completely free and 100% confidential. I want to thank my guests, activist and author Phil Michael Thomas. He was joined by Dr. Ima Ahankai and Dr. Peter Ribeiro. Thank you all for being with us today and thank you for the work that you're doing. We want to thank everybody who tuned in this hour. Tomorrow, the General Assembly is in full swing. We'll talk with some of the youngest member. Representative Justin Pearson is going to be on the show. This is Nashville. It's a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Magnolia McKay. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos-Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tuthope. The masterminds behind our theme music are Laurent and Namir Blade. Special thanks to Ray Holeman and Del Ray Zimmerman. The conversation does 
doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Let us know what you want from our show by hitting us up on Instagram. This Is Nashville. I'm Khalil A. Colonna. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other.